Well, I'd like to try and give a, a little more attention to Easter, and I want to uh, look at what is said in John's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 41, where it's written, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never man yet laid. There are those who believe that the garden tomb, as it's called, has been identified in Jerusalem. And if you've ever had the privileges I have of going there, you can well understand that sentiment to say that this is the place where Christ was laid. But archaeologically, it doesn't rest on very good foundations. There is a, another spot which has a better claim to it. I don't think we will ever find out rich, where indeed the garden tomb was. But one thing we do know is that there was a garden tomb, as the evangelist John tells us. And he tells us that this uh, tomb, this garden, belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, as Matthew's Gospel tells us, was a rich man. Uh, Mark's Gospel tells us he was an honourable counsellor. And Luke tells us he was a good man and just and John tells us he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And yet we see that the crucifixion of Christ does bring out uh, in open confession um, the profession of, of faith, as it were, of Joseph and indeed of Nicodemus. Because um, as this passage in John 12 makes clear, there were those among the rulers who did believe in Jesus but secretly out of fear. But now Joseph and Nicodemus, as it were, step forth and identify with Christ. But I just want to look at the aspect of the garden here, and really perhaps more by way of meditation than anything else, to think of this, that in the place where he was crucified, in that locality, there was a garden, and in that garden there was this new tomb which had never been used before. Firstly, let us realize that the garden here speaks of God's vindication of Christ. There has been recent archaeological analysis of an ancient garden in Jerusalem, and they have found, and if this is typical of the gardens of rich people of the day, they found the pollen of the following species. Willows, poplars, myrtle trees, water lilies, fruit trees, including grapes, common figs, olives, as well as citron, Persian walnut, cedar of Lebanon, and birch. Obviously, uh, some, somewhere that was very pleasant and indeed showed the um, expense in furnishing it with plants and perhaps plotting out uh, the, where the trees were laid and, and flower beds and so on. Now, we can't, of course, be sure what was in Joseph's garden, but as a rich man, as a wealthy man, uh, we can be sure that it would have been well supplied. Indeed, in the time of Jesus and earlier, the word for the garden of a king, of an oriental king or a rich person, the word was paradise. And you may remember that Jesus says to one of the thieves crucified with him, today you will be with me in paradise. 
It was the thought of heaven, really the garden reflecting something in a, in a shadowy way, something of the beauty of heaven. But while we do not know much about the garden, we can be sure that this is not an irrelevant detail because no detail in the scripture is irrelevant and certainly least of all when we think of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Let me refer you to Isaiah chapter 53, a passage that Jonathan led us to recently in his ministry among us. Isaiah chapter 53. And take you to verse 9, where the prophet prophesies of the Messiah of Christ. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Now, as you read through that chapter 53, you realize it's kind of a downward path. It's the descent of a hill as we go deeper and deeper into the sufferings of Christ and the reasons for it, how God was punishing him for the sins, not not his own sins as he had none, but for the sins of his people. And the chastisement of their peace was upon him. And we go down and down, but at the end of the chapter... It's as though we're climbing up and up. We're coming to him seeing the travail of his soul and being satisfied by his knowledge, justifying many and having a portion divided with the strong. It speaks of him still alive. It speaks really of his resurrection. But at the bottom of the hill, before it goes up, it's as though you come to the valley and then it begins to turn and to go up. And there is clear indication of this In the passage, that turning point, there in verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked. That's with the thieves dying with him. And then it goes unaccountably to the phrase, and with the rich in his death. It's a turning point. It's the point where there's now a hint of triumph beginning to come faintly through in the darkness and the dirge and the death. It's the beginning, as it were, of dawn. And you get exactly the same in the gospel accounts as they speak of Christ's death. And particularly in John's account, we see it there. For example, in John 19, in our reading, we see that it speaks of Christ's body, that a bone of him was not broken, The soldier pierced his side. That's death. That's the bottom of the hill. That's his sufferings and his passion. But then we're told a bone of him was not broken. They didn't need to break the bones. Clear reference here to the Passover lamb. God is caring for the body of his Christ in in his providence. And then we come again to something else that is a hint of blessing to come. 
Now he's going to be placed not in the normal place for crucified criminals, which was Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom, in the rubbish heaps, which were always smoldering and burning, but he was going to be buried somewhere completely unexpected. He was going to be buried in a tomb that had never been used before, but it was not just some little unimportant tomb, it was the tomb of a rich man. And it was in a garden, a rich garden. As C.H. Spurgeon said, Christ's was a royal funeral, not least the myrrh and aloes and all the ointments brought by Nicodemus and brought by the women to the tomb. A huge vindication is taking place. That vindication is something that Paul mentions in his letter to Timothy as he just summarizes the glorious gospel in these words. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified or vindicated in the spirit. This is the point where things are beginning to go upwards. But it will be three days before he is resurrected. God doesn't rush. He has his timings. The wheels of God grind slowly and yet steadily. And at just the right moment, on the third day, there will be complete vindication as Christ is raised from the dead by his Father. We see, therefore, that there's a providence in the provision of this garden, a token of future vindication. Just to remind you that it will be so with the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be so with every true believer. Some die through persecution and martyrdom. Many die having experienced sufferings of the faith and rejection And yet God will one day vindicate his saints. He'll come to be, uh, Jesus will come and will meet his saints in the air. As it says in 2 Thessalonians and chapter 1 and verse 7 uh, or verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And there are tokens even now, of that future vindication. What are these tokens? Well, one is that Jesus says, I am building my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In spite of all the uh, contempt and persecution, in spite of the uh, world seeking to bury, as it were, the body of Christ, in in spite of that uh, destruction of the two witnesses in spiritual Sodom and Gomorrah, Yet the church lives on. As it were, the bodies are still there and God will raise them through the gospel. Yes, there is 
the hint of future vindication in the fact that Christians are not browbeaten and led into complete retreats. They're not overwhelmed by the persecution. Remember, this is the point that Paul makes in his letter to the Philippians. As he says, only let your conversation, your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. It's an evident token of perdition that the Church of Jesus Christ isn't intimidated, isn't led into complete retreat, isn't led to hide its light under a bushel, isn't led to just close down, however dark and difficult the days. This is why they hate Christians. This is why they hate gospel churches. This is why they hate the very existence of places and fear the very existence of places that preach of sin and judgment to come and heaven and hell and Christ. This is part of the vindication, that the, 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 ap- the apprehension of a vindication yet to come. The garden speaks of vindication, firstly. Secondly, this garden where the tomb was speaks of Christ as the second Adam. It highlights a contrast for us. As we know, the first Adam, Adam and Eve, fell in a garden. A garden that was a rich garden, undoubtedly. Every tree was there, every beautiful fruit. Everything was perfect in that garden, well watered by rivers and so on. And it was there that the fall took place. It was there that Satan beguiled Eve and Adam, and they sinned, they disobeyed God. And here is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself has been through an awful experience in the wilderness of temptation, and the temptation continued in the Garden of Gethsemane, as well as at other times, of course. And here now, towards the end of his earthly ministry, he is placed in a garden. He has retraced the steps of Adam, and yet without sin. And it reminds us that Christ came to do what Adam failed to do, which is to be a man perfect and sinless and able to redeem the tribes of Adam, able to redeem sinners like us. And he was placed in a garden, a token of future blessings. And then thirdly, the garden speaks of fruitfulness. The garden is a reminder, yes, it's in the natural realm, as it were. It's an incidental, but it's not an irrelevant incidental. Christ is not placed out there in some rubbish heap, his body to be burned, his body to be trampled in amongst all the other rubbish, as it were. He's not out in some desert in some place where there's nothing growing, but he's in a place of fruitfulness because his life now is about to bear fruit. He's been as that seed which has fallen into the ground, that corn of wheat, 
and which has died. But it's going to be raised and it's going to bring forth much fruit. His, his resurrection is going to result in a huge flowering forth and a huge production of seed. Many are going to come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is going to go out through all the world. And before Christ returns, the whole church, the whole ransom church will have been saved. Every elect person, every person given by the Father to the Son, everyone whom the Son undertook to save will have heard the gospel, will have believed the gospel and will have been called to Christ. And at that moment, Christ will return. The garden speaks of that massive fruitfulness. What a privilege it is to be a Christian. What a necessity is laid upon you if you're not a Christian that you should cry to God for mercy. And then thirdly, sorry, fourthly, the garden speaks of communion with God. The Garden of Eden was a place where God communed with Adam and Eve before they fell. We don't know how long it was before they fell after the first creation, probably not long at all. But we know that they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the words used, the phrases used, suggest an appearance of Christ before his incarnation, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a theophany or a Christophany, and suggests that there was something visible, some, some tangible sense, uh, bodily sense of the presence of God. And there they communed with him. But we're told at the end of Genesis 3 that God drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword to keep the way for the tree of life. He turned them out of the garden, speaking of interrupted, of broken fellowship, of a place that was no longer there for them to meet with Christ, the mediator. And yet the garden speaks of communion because in the rich uh, teaching of the Song of Solomon, we are reminded that the fellowship between the believer, between the church of Christ, between the believer and the Lord Jesus is like a garden. Let me just quote to you Canticles, Song of Solomon, chapter four, verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphire with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Now clearly this is highly allegorical. It's highly 
uh, mystical in a sense, but it is speaking of communion with Christ, of fellowship with Christ. And you have these plants in the garden. They're all non-native, or many of them are non-native to Israel. They're, They're herbs that have been brought in. They're speaking of election, the election of grace, as people dead in trespasses and sins are brought to Christ and believe upon him. And there's a fountain of waters, and there's the wind speaking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Sometimes that wind is from the north. It's cold and cutting as it's been recently because God purges us and teaches us and disciplines us. Sometimes it's balmy and warm and fructifying like that wind from the south as God encourages us and the spices flow out, speaking of the graces of Christ. But it's communion with God on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ for us sinners and a fellowship with Christ. So when those believers walked with Christ on the road to Emmaus soon after his resurrection, they could say, did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us by the way? As Jesus spoke to them from the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning him and his death and his glory You see, it's as though Eden is being recovered, paradise is being recovered through Christ's death and resurrection. It's the recovery of paradise. And here is this tomb in the garden to remind us of this great aspect of the work of Christ. And then finally, the garden speaks of God's care for his people. We've already noted that a bone of him was not broken. The tomb was capacious. The tomb was there hollowed out in the rock for him. It was a tomb in which no one had ever been laid before, a tomb in which his body could be laid unmangled, unbroken up, wrapped with the bandages, wrapped with the spices. It's a reminder of God's care for his son, but it's also a reminder of God's care for his people, for those who are believers in Christ. We should never forget that Psalm 16, which is often quoted as a messianic psalm, uh, speaking of Jesus himself, is also a psalm of David as it speaks of his hope. And the end of that psalm says this, let's think of it from David's perspective. It says this, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now certainly there are particular aspects which are emphasized in the life and experience of Messiah at his resurrection. But there's a a bigger sense in which this applies to all believers. Thou wilt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. A reminder that the body of the saints, the body of God's people, will one day be resurrected as a glorious body, as a body of 
life and light and immortality. And our souls and bodies will be reunited at the coming of Christ. In other words, our bodies are not throwaway items of irrelevance for us to do exactly what we want with them uh, without reference to whether or not it's good or bad. We're to remember that that was the mistake, uh, the sin of the Corinthians, to think of their bodies like that and to misuse their bodies. But our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which are not our own because they have been bought with a price and therefore we're to glorify God in our body and in our spirit. And on the return of Christ, they will be resurrected. They may turn to dust, they will turn to dust. They will become part of the uh, ecosphere, but God will raise them again. There is a fruitfulness and there is a care that God has for his people here demonstrated in the way in which he cared for his own son. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. God cares for every believer who has died. Everyone who you have known, maybe a member of your family, Everyone who has trusted in Christ as his saviour, God is looking after them. God is caring for them. They are asleep in Jesus. And their bodies will be reunited with their souls in glory at the last.